Good morning. Our readings today are from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6, and from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. If you're using the Pew Bible, uh, the 2 Corinthians reading is on page 1124, and then Ephesians 6 is, I lost my bookmark, Ephesians 6 is on page 1137, just a little bit further. 2 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 3 to 6. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Now Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. So, in accord with uh, the end of that passage, let's pray for Pastor Mark and the ministry of the word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, we have access to it, and we can read it, and we can hear it. Um, thank you that you give us uh, the full armor that we need in Christ, and uh, especially for, for the shield of faith uh, with which we can put out all those flaming arrows. Uh, please increase our faith. Uh, please give us ears to hear your word, and please, uh, please be with Pastor Mark now. Um, give him the words that, that you want him to say, and uh, help him to convey them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Stephen. I must say, as I get ready to get started, that Michelle blessed me in a way that I've never been blessed before ever in my life. And that is, she just said that my singing would be a blessing to others. And that's never happened to me before. So thank you for that. She said, when did I say that? Well, go back to the tape. You did. <laughs> We've uh, made a decided turn this morning toward Easter. Yes, Easter, already, or finally, whichever might be your position and the way you're feeling about what seems now to, have to, to be the waning 
time of COVID, praise the Lord, but we're not out of it yet, and it's not finished with us, uh, clearly. We've had three of our people contract COVID this week, so we are down two families this morning and a, a, a fourth person uh, who was key to our um, operation this morning, or at least we thought, but none of this is a surprise to the Lord, and so here we go walking by faith and not by sight once again. Easter, of course, is the season on the church calendar when we acknowledge, we grieve, we celebrate, and we renew our hope in the substitutionary and perfectly satisfactory death of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, specifically our sins, by faith and his resurrection that we might be justified. Justification meaning that we have been made or are being made right with God, who is holy, and he makes us right with himself by the broken body, the shed blood, and the powerful spirit of regeneration in Christ. Thus, we're, we're going to step away here for a bit from our series, Biblical Christians, Who Are We?, uh, and we will return back after this, the Easter season. And this morning we begin an Easter-themed worship and word series that I've entitled, In Christ Jesus, God Has Overcome Sin and Death Once, For All, Forever. And I'd note that this also reflects who we are proclaiming this very message. So it's very consistent with where we've been over the last number of weeks, even a couple of months. One of the subtitles I've given this series is a series of worship themes and sermons at Easter for a church in transition, which we are, especially coming out of this COVID season, but also we need constantly to see ourselves as in transition from the now to the next, from the historical to the experiential, from today to tomorrow, and on into eternity. Just a brief side note. Originally, I intended to borrow from the Puritan John Owen, who is my favorite dead theologian. Uh, I love his writing. I love his way of thinking. Um, and he almost always agrees with me, so of course I like him a lot. Um, his title for a series of essays that he wrote on the cross was The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, which has now been made into a book that's quite popular among evangelical preachers and scholars. But Pastor Yuri thought that was entirely too much death, the death of death and the death of Christ, <laughs> especially as we're trying to come out of COVID isolation, so now it's also a second subtitle. I do hope you and your loved ones will find a way to join us as often on Sunday mornings as possible through Easter, also after Easter, but not only on Easter. And please do make use of our live stream when you can't be here in person, but please not as a replacement, but as an enhancement. Now before we get to it, I'd like to address just, just with a word, a short word on three issues. Holy communion, prayer for healing, 
and baptism. This morning, near the end of our worship gathering, we'll share Holy Communion together and with, as we've said for a long time now, and with the Lord Jesus. So we believe that he comes and joins us here in a special way as we engage in this not merely observational or ordinance. Uh, it's not merely a symbol, but it also is an invitation to him to join us and an invitation from him for us to join him in his work on the cross. And we do that regularly here at Bethesda Church on the third Sunday of the month. Next month, we'll share Holy Communion as part of our Good Friday service, as we normally do, regardless of the timing of Easter. It just turns out that this Easter falls on the third weekend of April, which means we'll also begin offering special prayer on that Sunday as well. This, this special prayer can be for healing or for any special need or purpose we may have as individuals, as couples, as families, as a congregation. And our first offering of this special prayer on a regular basis will follow our Easter Sunday service, which I think is nice symmetry. I also want to say a word about baptism. On all but three Easter Sundays in the last 15 years, and one of them was last Easter when we didn't do hardly anything on Easter Sunday, at least not, nothing additional, we did not uh, even um, consider the possibility of having baptisms. But on all but three Easter Sundays in the last 15 years, we've been blessed to celebrate the sacrament of believer's baptism here at Bethesda. So if you are a new believer or you are a believer who's never been baptized as a believer in and a disciple of Jesus, we'd love to talk with you, either me or Pastor Yuri or uh, Elder Neil, uh, any one of us, and we'd be glad to help you along with that. One of the most confounding issues that few Christians, even devoted biblical Christians, have an adequate answer for, and many non-Christians find off-putting in the extreme to the point of being an obstacle to moral belief, is the prevalence of war and the devastations of war in the Bible, and specifically, the Old Testament. Even by personal decree of the God of the Bible, why does the God of the Old Testament sometimes present so much like a warmonger? Now, I'm not here suggesting there are two gods, one of the Old Testament and one of the New, which some people teach. There is but one God, and he's not divided between testaments. I'm simply addressing the seemingly different tones and events which have confounded both Christians and non-Christians and led to weak faith or even the lack of faith. These concerns may be magnified these days and weeks as we see and hear about the terrible and unprovoked war being waged right now by Vladimir Putin on Ukraine. Where is the apparent God of the Old Testament who seems quite willing to wage war at other times? You may have questions about this too, but have been afraid to ask. 
Why all the bloodshed in the Old Testament, including what we'd rightly call genocide by today's standards? Why all the bloodshed today without an obvious response of intervention from the God of the Bible? Several times in the Old Testament, we read that God has ordered his people to do what seems to us to be the slaughter of our fellow human beings created by him, uniquely and equally as we are, to bear his very own image and to represent himself on the earth. Occasionally, God himself commands, engages in, directly supports, or intervenes in war against his enemies and the enemies of his people to the extermination of a whole tribe, a whole people group, or the subjugation of a whole nation. What's up with that? Well, uh, two, th two things to begin. First, these are good and appropriate questions. And we need to know that God is not afraid of our questions. He's not disdainful of our honest questions. And some questions take more work to answer. And not all of them fit in a children's Sunday school lesson. And some answers take more faith to believe, frankly. Also, God desires and requires that our faith in him be grounded in both sound thinking and a humble faith. Both good history and personal experience. Both trust in his word written in Holy Scripture and a responsiveness to his word made flesh, Jesus Christ. So these are good and appropriate questions. But secondly, as we ask such honest and important questions about particular matters, it's vital that we do so through the trustworthy biblical lens of God's revealed and eternal character. From beginning to end, the Bible insists that the God of the Bible is altogether sovereign and good, righteous and holy, loving and just, merciful and true. He is both king and he is servant. There truly is no one like our God. And the answer to our question this morning, why all the war and bloodshed in the Bible, and specifically in the Old Testament, is our central truth of the message. It's there in your upper left-hand corner on the inside of your bulletin. I'd like you to look at it for just a moment once again. When sin began, and we'll talk about that in quite a bit of detail in just a minute. When sin began, God immediately set himself, and that is his whole triune self, against it, that is against sin, from eternity past, even as sin spread unto death to and throughout the human race and the whole of creation. In other words, God has been, God is, and God will be at war with sin until the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death. Another way of putting this, another way of framing this deep biblical, historical, and spiritual truth is, since sin and death became, became realities, whether in the heavenlies or on the earth, God has, has set himself fully against sin and death, and also its sources beginning with the devil. In previous messages, we've seen the catastrophic human and earthly coincidence, or rather consequence, 
of humanity's fall into sin that did, that does, and that will always inevitably lead to death. We are seeing, albeit from afar currently, a terrible material expression of this truth in Ukraine. But we need to know that love, life, truth, and goodness will overcome hate, death, lies, and evil. It may take time. It may extend into eternity. But it will happen. It will happen. Beyond that, there is what we might call a cosmic and consequence, uh, cosmic occurrence rather, and consequence to sin, no less catastrophic, though we can't see it with our eyes or hear it with our ears. What we've read about in Eden over the last number of weeks applies to the material realm of creation, beginning with the fall of humanity into sin and the death that took root in us. What we're reading and learning about this morning and next week applies primarily to the spiritual or heavenly realm. Again, no less real, though invisible, but perhaps actually equally substantial and certainly eternal in scope. But make no mistake, every human conflict, every abuse of creation or humiliation of human beings, every destructive barrier beyond, between persons, people groups, or nations, every single war that breaks out on the earth is both the fruit and the reflection of this cosmic conflict that began with the devil in the heavenlies and has now spilled out and over the earth. Every single one. Related questions we're trying to answer this morning and in all the sermons of this series are representative. This isn't, these aren't all the questions we could ask, of course, but these are just representative of the kind of questions that we would like to, to answer. Did Jesus have to die? If Jesus did have to die, why him, why them, why then, and why them who brought him to the cross? If he did have to die, when was his death on the cross conceived? We'll look at that in just a moment. Why did he have to die so ugly? Was his historical bodily resurrection essential to God's purpose to save, reconcile, restore, and renew all things to himself? And if so, why? How can we benefit from his death and resurrection even today? Well, for our purposes this morning, God's plan for saving us and reconciling all things to himself occurred before he even brought creation into being. At least the part of creation that we inhabit in the material realm. So God's war on sin and death and the sources of both began in eternity past. And it runs through the cross and it continues on even today. Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And we've talked about this before five times in the book of Ephesians. It's one of the reasons it's my, it's my favorite book. But five times in the book of Ephesians, this, this phrase, exactly this phrase, in the heavenlies. I know our more contemporary translations want to help us, and so they say, in the heavenly realms or in the heavenly places. And I'm not sure that helps us because I think that in our minds, our concrete, our minds that want a concrete point of beginning, we say, oh, in the heavenly realms or in the heavenly places, and we start thinking, where is that place? Well, that place is all around us. That place is immaterial. We can't see it. We can't pick it up with the way that we, we see or the way that we hear or the way that we touch. But it's all around us, in the heavenly. So that's why it's so important for us to engage in the battle that's at that's raging all around us. It's also where God exists in his person. I know he is everywhere present at the same time, but in the heavenlies is where God as a spirit resides. It's also where the devil treads. So five times in the book of Ephesians, this exact phrase, in the heavenlies is used. So one of the major points of the book of Ephesians is that we have a place in the church in this battle that is going on in the heavenlies. Okay, so there's my mini-sermon on one of my favorite topics. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, that is, even as God chose us in Christ, watch this now, before the foundation of the world. So God existed because he has always existed. The heavenly host existed. At some point, having been created before God created the material uh, universe, Satan had fallen and taken up to a third of the angels with him. All of that had happened before the material creation was brought into being. And so we read this again with, with that kind of background. We understand it probably considerably more. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Even now, even as he chose us in him before we existed. I mean, that's the practical truth of this phrase before the foundation of the world, right? before we ever existed, not just us personally, but human beings, even before he put the world in place, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for what? Adoption to himself as children or sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, that is in Christ before the foundation of the world, in this sermon and in this series, I'm asking of the Bible's text and inviting you to join me in the inquiry, why or perhaps even how did God choose us in Christ before the foundation of the world? So we approach this question not with disbelief and asking God to prove it, but with belief asking God to give us insight into his will and word. Those are the kind of questions that he loves to answer that come from a position of belief, 
seeking to understand. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 21, says something very similar but also distinctly. Verse 18 and following, you were ransomed, you were bought back from, from something, from bondage, from slavery, from something, from death, from hell. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 20. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Exactly the same phrase. Foreknown before the foundation of the world. But now he's talking about Christ, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So this is time for me to give my other 30-second sermon. Whenever we encounter phrases like in the last time or in the last days or, or in the last times, immediately, it seems, our minds go to the end times, and that's not what it means usually in the New Testament. Usually what it means is after Christ has come. Every day after Christ came is one of the last days. And that's how it's meant usually in the New Testament. I'd say probably 90% of the time, I haven't done a statistical analysis, but 90 to 95% of the time, that's the way this phrase or this concept in the last days or in the last times or in the last time is used. Every day after Christ came is one of the last days. So when somebody comes and asks me, Pastor, do you believe we're in the last days? And I said, well, that, that, that depends on what you mean by last days. Do I think that Jesus is coming back tomorrow? Probably not. Could he? Probably could. I'm not sure that everything in Scripture is fulfilled for him to do that yet, but that's potentially true. But that's not what the Bible means. The Bible means when it says in the last days, in the last times, it means every day after Christ came the first time. Now when it says in the last day, and sometimes it's capitalized in the scripture to make sure that we understand that this is something distinct, this is something prophesied, this is something that, that, that's real and substantial and tangible, now that is pointing to the time that Christ would come back. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, could be a simple statement of Jesus' pre-incarnation, that is, his existence from eternity past as a member of the Holy Trinity, which of course he was, is, and forever will be. It is that, but that's not all it is. Its context is the salvation from God's wrath, condemnation, and death of those who make up the church. The called out ones, the adopted people of the living God by faith from before the foundation of the world. In other words, the cross of Jesus Christ was in God's mind, was being planned, and was fully in play since before the foundation of the world in eternity past. It will also be so, culminating in eternity future, on the earth and in the heavenlies, as a pathway to worship, as recorded in Revelation 5.12, Yuri did not have any idea that, that I would touch upon this verse this morning, as we sing with the heavenly host, worthy is the lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. Not so long ago, we read portions of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 to introduce us to the reality of the devil. His origin story, which is kind of a hot-button issue these days, as an archangel of God, specifically a seraph, a guardian seraph, perhaps the most powerful and highest in the heavenly host. Some suggest that he might have been the worship leader of the heavenly host. That's more speculative than, than biblical, I'm afraid. And certainly he was the most beautiful creature God had ever created, and the text says that. But also, we saw the beginnings of his malicious part in the fall of humanity into sin, bringing upon all creation the consequence of decline and death. And so I'd like for us to return there this morning as the backdrop of this war that the one true and living triune and almighty God has committed himself until all is set right. I want us to go there because it's also the backdrop of the cross and the culmination of time. When Jesus returns as warrior Lord and vanquishes all the forces of evil forever. And that's not a Marvel movie, that's the Bible. And in New Testament scripture, we need to know before we read these verses, an earthly character will often not only represent himself in history, but also a spiritual reality behind and beyond the scene. And such is the case in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. In Isaiah, it's the king of Babylon. In Ezekiel, it's the king of Tyre. And both represent Satan or Lucifer, as the King James has it, or the devil in a larger cosmic, even eternal picture. Here in Isaiah 14, beginning with verse 3, we pick up that horrendous word. The Lord here speaking by the Holy Spirit to Isaiah. When the Lord Yahweh has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, and you see here in the first two verses that he's speaking to Jacob or Israel as a whole. He says Jacob and Israel. Um, and he is, in a sense, solidifying Israel's place in God's plan. Verse 4, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So likely, once again, as often in the Old Testament, the king of Babylon represented an historical figure of the time, but also something or someone beyond that context. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased, the Lord Yahweh has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, not with you, not because of you, but at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol, the place of the, of the dead not related to God, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. 
All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who were kings of the nations, all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. Wow. That's about as bad as you can get, I think. We've got some other horrendous pictures of hell in the Bible, but this is a pretty stark one. So who's he talking about? I know I've already given it away, but we find out in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Now, the King James Version has O day star, Lucifer. which comes from the Latin manuscript that the King James Version was translated from called the Textus Receptus. And in Latin, light bearer or son of light is Lucifer. And the interpreters of the King James Version, I believe they got it right here, connected this with the devil directly rather than just translating the text, which they could have done. They identified this specifically as Lucifer or Satan. It literally says, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on this mount of assembly, the place of worship. In the far reaches of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And this is the the starkest statement anywhere in the Bible. I, whoever day star, son of dawn was or is, I will make myself, make myself like the most high. And with a statement like that, that sealed Satan's fate. Well, the Lord isn't done yet. Verse 15, but you are brought down to shield, to hell, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers nevermore be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. Verse 22, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Yahweh of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord Yahweh, and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog. (laughs) I love that. And pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord Yahweh of hosts. Wow. This is God at war. 
This is God at war against evil, against lies, against war-mongering, against Satan. So God promises by his word and through his prophets the downfall, the defeat, and the utter destruction of the devil. It also speaks in some real, discernible, even eternal sense to the direct setting of God's whole being, his entire triune self, against this evil, against this devil that spawns sin and brings death, and all the evil means he would and he does use. And according to scripture, the devil deluded himself and up to a third of the heavenly host into believing that he could be and that he should be God. That he would usurp God's throne and God's authority. But we know from the rest of the Bible that any attempt to dethrone the one true living and almighty God to install literally a false God in his place is altogether evil. And he... And it, Satan and all evil, must be utterly opposed, and God does utterly oppose it. This does not make God insecure or defensive about his standing, which is a charge that some make. In other words, he's no better than Vladimir Putin or Stalin or Hitler. And here's why. There can only be one true, living, and almighty God. Why? Because there is, ever has been, and ever will be, one true, living, and almighty God anywhere or ever. All others, all other Candidates and all other concepts are false imposters, enemies of the truth, and purveyors of the biggest lie ever perpetuated. This also doesn't make God a warmonger. Some wars are evil against evil, which suits the devil just fine. Destruction and mayhem are his handiwork. The more gratuitous, the better. Wherever disorder, chaos, and anarchy manifest, the devil will be near at hand. Historically, this evil-against-evil war-making would include Russia's Stalin against Germany's Hitler. Though Stalin was on our side, that is, the Allied side, for a minute during World War II, he'd go on to prove himself very, every bit as evil, subjugating his own people by murderous and oppressive autocracy that Vladimir Putin intends, by his own words, to remake in his own image. There are other wars that are less clear who's the good guy, if any, and who's the bad guy. But there are wars, such as the one raging in Ukraine today, that pit good, or at least the better, less culpable, more true, against a truly evil aggressor and perpetrator. I'm not talking here about the Russian people, but on the scale of good versus evil, World War II was a thoroughly righteous cause, a necessary war against encroaching evil. I believe the generation that lived and died during World War II saved the world. It does, however, make the one true living almighty and triune God the only God, a warrior 
fit for and committed to the battle, the battle for life and truth, the battle for beauty and righteousness, the battle for grace and mercy, the battle for goodness, order, and love, culminating with Jesus' sacrificial and substitutionary offering of himself on the cross of Calvary. That was the death blow to death and the devil. We get more insight into the story of pre-creation delusion, rebellion, and treason in the heavenlies from our passage in Ezekiel 28. Turn there with me. We'll basically just read it and we'll be pretty much done at that point. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 1 through 19. Remember the, the, the prince or the king of Tyre is the historical figure behind which stands a bigger reality beyond. The word of the Lord Yahweh came to me, Ezekiel writes, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God. Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, I will sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth, and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a god, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas." Will you, say, will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Verse 11, moreover, <laughs> in other words, the Lord God was not done with him yet. The word of the Lord Yahweh came to me, verse 12, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, so it was the prince of Tyre, the first ten verses, king of Tyre, some conversation about was, was it to the son and then to the father, or, was, or were these both, did the prince become the king? It's not clear, but that's not even the point. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Listen to this. This can only be applied to one being ever in the history of the created realm. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. 
On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub, or seraph, depending on the translation that you have. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. Watch this last line. You have come to a, to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Well, that sentence has yet to be exercised or executed. It's still future. And we will see it. And even at this point, though, as I close, it may not be clear what all this talk of war and wrath and bloodshed has to do with Easter. To which I must respond, it has everything to do with Easter. Though we may not usually, if ever, talk about it or hear about it in this way. I, I surely haven't. John Owen covered it in his excellent book that I mentioned, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. I hope to cover it with a little help from my friends along our way in this series. In Christ Jesus, God has overcome sin and death once for all forever. And this first sermon in our series has been God at War 1. Next week, we'll continue with part two. We'll take, we'll take a decidedly New Testament turn to make it even clearer. But before we go, I do want to bring your attention back to the central truth of our message for this morning, which has been the sin when sin began, now we know that it began in the heavenlies, not in Eden. When sin began, God immediately set himself, his whole triune self, against it from eternity past. Even as sin spread unto death to and throughout the human race and the whole of creation. In other words, God has been, God is now, and God will be at war until Jesus wins the ultimate victory and the devil is defeated. One of the profound and important expressions of God's faithfulness to wage this war of truth and rescue, which is the beginning of the end of the battle for the souls of humanity and the restoration of the whole creation, we celebrate as Good Friday in the death of Christ on the cross. And it is Jesus' own establishment of what we call Holy Communion. We participate together in Holy Communion as a congregation on the third Sunday of most months. And we do so this morning. If you haven't done so yet, you may want to get from that basket right back there on the table, uh, one of our communion units. We're, we're going to use these until they're gone. Um, and then by that time, maybe we'll feel good about passing the plate again.
But I want to invite you, if you are a born-again disciple of Jesus, if you have been bought by the blood of Christ, join us. The table that we have been entrusted with is open to all believers from wherever and whatever your particular tradition is. I'll give you just a moment to, to pick those up. Normally I would say something earlier. I just, I just didn't think of it. We all know the story, but we tell this story over and over again and regularly because it is the source of our salvation. That is the death of Jesus Christ as our substitute, but not only that, but as our substitute that is perfect and perfectly satisfactory to set aside God's wrath. He took upon himself God's wrath that was due us upon himself, and he, in an incredible act of grace, transferred to us his righteousness to the point at which we can be now actually and called the righteousness of God because he has done a work in us by his word, by his spirit, by the blood and broken body of Christ. So on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread as he sat among his disciples. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat it. And they did. Jesus, we thank you for your broken body. One of the questions I asked earlier is, why did you have to die so ugly? And I'm not sure we have a definitive answer to that, though we do know that your prophets, most especially Isaiah in 52 and 53 of his prophecy, but in other places as well, made clear that your death would be ugly, that it would be perhaps the most terrible spectacle of brutality and pain ever experienced by a human being, and you chose to become a human being. You didn't have to be, but you, you chose to become a human being and put yourself in our place. And that act of love, mercy, and grace is exemplified in your broken body, and we thank you for what you have done on our behalf, Lord Jesus. Amen. Then the scripture says that at the end of the meal, he took the cup. And he presented it to the disciples. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. My blood is the blood of a new covenant 
between God and his people. And we now know, beyond that scripture and that moment, that God's covenant has now been extended to Gentiles, to all of us, all people, all nations, on the single basis of the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ and our receiving of it by faith. What an extraordinary expression of God's grace. And Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink it. And they did. God, our Father, I first want to thank you for choosing us before the foundation of the world. Whether this was before or after Satan fell and led some significant portion of your heavenly host in rebellion against you is not clear. All we know is that before we ever were born, you had already planned to save us, and we thank you for that. Before Adam and Eve ever walked the earth, you had a plan to save us, and we thank you for that. And we're so sorry that what was done to Jesus was necessary, was even good in a sense of its outcome, though it took great evil to visit that pain and suffering and death upon him. We are so thankful for the way that he traveled. And he is now our way to you, straight through the cross, covered by the shed blood of Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our souls. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that your grace will continue to reign in our bodies and in our families and in your church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, even this small extension of it known as Bethesda, in Jesus' name.